speak, O Lord, until your church is built and the world is filled with your glory. I think it's very appropriate on our last Lord's Day here together that we are talking about the power of the Word of God to cause conversions because there isn't a single person in this room who is a true believer in Christ who did not go through the process that we're learning from Acts chapter 2 about conversion, hearing, hearing the Word of God and hearing it deeply. Do you remember that little saying Jesus had, he who has ears to hear, let him hear? I sat in church for many years. I didn't have ears to hear. There are people who come to church all over the land and they don't have ears to hear. I hope that's not true of any of you, that you're hearing with your outward ear and not your inward ear, because that's what Christ meant. There is something you are to hear deep in your soul. You must hear it. If you don't hear the voice of God deep within your soul, showing you your failures, humbling your heart, making you aware of the judgment of God, that you will face the judgment of God. If you haven't heard that voice in your inner person, you're not converted yet. You're not a Christian. You're not right with God, and you're not safe. Conversion is a beautiful thing, but you have to listen to it for yourself. I know how it is. This would be a great message for so-and-so to hear. Well, I don't know whether it is or not, but I do know it's a great message for you to hear. Because we all had to hear it. We all had to be convicted by sin. We all had to have realization that we weren't good enough to enter into heaven, that the promises from the other religions and false Christianity were, were not true. The people that have died and passed on trusting in their own righteousness have perished. They, um, they'll never make it with God. Um, but for us, there's hope, and for our children, there's hope, because we have the Word of God. So, what a very appropriate song for us to close with. Thank you. Speak, O Lord. Um, let's hear the Word of the Lord, Acts chapter 2, verses 37 to 41. Let's read it and continue our exposition of this. Wonderful text, very powerful text coming at the end of Peter's sermon, starting in verse 37. Now, when they heard this, that is the sermon, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brethren, what shall we do? Peter said to them, repent and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, 
as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. And with many other words, he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, be saved from this perverse generation. So then, those who had received his word were baptized, and that day there were added about 3,000 souls. Our thesis in this mini-series from this text is that Christian conversion is beautiful. Therefore, working for conversions in others, like Peter did, is noble. We should not be ashamed or have to be embarrassed when someone asks us, are you trying to convert me? The answer I guess you took from the title of the series is, yes, I am trying to convert you. It's exactly what I'm trying to do, and I'll keep working on it. Um, what is clear is that God will not accept anybody unless they have a conversion, a radical, genuine conversion. And so we should add that it's not only beautiful to be converted, it's necessary. Now, the outline we're following is uh, several components of biblical conversion. Component number one, this is review from last time, gospel preaching, hearing the Word of God about Christ. This point just takes note of the very first few words there in verse 37. Peter had just finished preaching a powerful sermon. It was all about Jesus Christ. So they heard about Jesus Christ. They heard the Word. They believed And then they end up being converted by what mechanism? By the Word of God. The Word is the instrument. The Word is the power. The Word is the tool that converts people. We need to understand that. Can't bury the Bible. Can't tone down the Bible. It's the Bible that is the power of salvation. So it has to be heard loudly and it has to offend. It has to do its work. Otherwise, people will not be converted. The crowd heard it and they responded. Now, not everybody that hears it responds. We know that. But it still is the power. It's the efficacy, we call it. The Word of God is effective and efficient and sufficient for salvation and then teaching us beyond salvation. The Word of God is likened unto, do you remember, a seed. When it's planted, then it brings forth whatever is in the DNA of that seed, the life that is planted there. You plant a tomato seed, you don't get okra, right? You get the new life of Christ, the Word of God planted in your heart, and what grows out of there, what causes the new birth, is the very DNA of the Word of God in a spiritual sense. It is the power of God that draws people, people that look like they have no interest at all in God or Christ or anything. They get converted. How? By the Word of God. Don't hide the Word. Memorize it. Speak it. It's the power. It's likened unto a hammer. Why do we need a hammer? To break the pride of man. Nothing happens in your life until your pride is dealt with. The Word is the sword that cuts deeply. Nobody likes being cut. I don't like being cut, but it's necessary. Why do you have to be cut and cut deeply? Because surgery needs to happen. Because uh, sin needs to be exposed. And here it's very clear that the Holy Spirit used the Word to bring about, and this is the second component of conversion. We talked about it last time. Conviction of sins. Write that down. Conviction of sins. That's kind of step number two. Now, people respond in conviction in different ways. What you see here is an entire crowd that realizes they've killed their Messiah. And so there's deep sorrow that happens there. 
Some people are convicted of their sins and they just want to get busy changing their life around. They don't necessarily shed tears, but here I imagine tears were shed. Conviction actually means the person becomes so acutely aware they've failed. There's a moral failure. Their life does not measure up to God. I know when someone was witnessing to me, that was what was clear to me. He said a lot of words. All I remember basically is I was in a lot of trouble with God. And I knew that was true. My conscience was on his side. He spoke the word. The word spoke to my conscience. I could lie outwardly, but inwardly I knew I'm a sinner. And anyone says they're not a sinner, they're lying to themselves as well as to you. Of course, we're all sinners. Everybody has sinned fallen short of the glory of God. There's none righteous, not even one. That's a quote from the Bible. There can be no relationship with God until one realizes their moral failure. That's why when you hear preachers on TV and other places and they're not talking about the sinfulness of man, you know they're not of God. They probably haven't even felt the conviction themselves. You have to realize you failed with God. Your life is a failure. You don't measure up. You're not good. You don't seek after good a God. Your motives are not good. Your actions are not pure. What's the greatest commandment in all the Bible? That's what I tell people. The greatest commandment. What is it? What is it? They quote the wrong thing. I said, it's this. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. I bet you've loved money more than God. I bet you've loved your pleasure and your comfort more than God. So you broke that commandment, and that's the greatest one. Now what are you going to do? And so with the realization of moral failure should also come this. I am under judgment. If one says, I morally failed, no big deal, everyone's morally failed, then they're not being convicted. The conviction is that I'm guilty, and the guilt deserves punishment. You have to come to the point where you say, it's right for God to reject me. It's right for God to inflict pain upon me. That's conviction. No one runs away from a fire until they're convinced it's out of control and it may burn them. Well, God is out of control. You can't control God. There is a fiery furnace. It's called the lake of fire. No one comes to Christ until they admit they're under judgment. The good news is there's a remedy for guilt. The remedy for guilt is not, as psychologists try to teach these days, to sort of act like it's not real, to minimize it, to suppress it, to try to do good deeds, to try to overthrow your bad deeds. You can't. Once you've done something bad, that can't be erased. How do you deal with guilt? Well, the penalty has to be paid. Someone has to pay the penalty. Christ did. What's above my head there? We're taking that down today. What's above my head? It's a cross. Who suffered there? Christ. Whose sins did he suffer for? Not his own. Not his own. So sins had to be dealt with. God would not allow his son to escape wrath. Why not? Sins have to be paid for. God's holy. He's just. There's there's a law. It's been broken. It has to be paid for. There's only one who could pay for it. And he did. He did it voluntarily. He laid down his life. He did it so you could escape hell. He suffered and bled and died. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Father, forgive them. They know not what they are doing. Those are his words from the cross, right? And he committed his soul to the Father. He suffered, he bled, and he died to deal with sin. What's our response? Not to pay for sins, but to believe in Him. 
to trust him. The way that comes out here in verse 38, when they say, what should we do? He expresses this belief and, as another word that goes right along with belief, and that is repent. That's a verb. Believe is a verb. Repent is a verb. Repent. That's the third component of conversion, repentance, genuine repentance. Look at verse 38. What should we do? Repent. Repent. We started this last time. I am so tempted to talk the entire time today on repentance again. Because it's such a critical component of conversion to understand repentance. It's not a small doctrine. We talked about this last time. It was the very first word John the Baptist preached. It was the first real public proclamation of Christ. That word, repent. Peter and Paul preached it. It's the first thing Peter says here about their response. Repent. Paul goes to Mars Hill and all the philosophers, talks to the most educated people in the world. If you had a chance to gather all of the most educated people, as they count education, in the world, what would you tell them? Tell them to repent. They're no good. That's what Paul did to the philosophers on Mars Hill. God is now declaring to all men everywhere that they must repent because he's fixed a day in which he will judge the world. What is repentance? The Greek term, repentance, the noun, is metanoia. It's a compound term, rich in meaning, has two parts. Meta, which means after. It's a preposition that means after. Noia means the mind. So it means an aftermind, a change in thought. Belief set that it was here, and now your beliefs have changed, and they're over here. It's a decisive change of mind. It's a decisive change of mind brought about by new information, new awareness. The gospel has now been preached to you, and you've heard God is holy, and he rejects you. He only loves you in the sense that he's willing to forgive you. He doesn't love you in the sense that he likes you and accepts you. He's rejected the human race. That's why we die. We mentioned that before. We're sinners and we die. The proof of that are all the tombstones that are out there. We all die. He's rejected us. Our lives are not good. But he still loves us and he's willing to pardon us. He's willing to erase our sin. But we have to have a decisive change of mind about it, a reversal in thinking. That's what you see here, isn't it? Look at these Jews. They're coming out into the street. This is a similar mob that would have been there crying to be able to fit in with their religious leaders, crying out for Jesus' crucifixion, right? Crucify, crucify. That's what the crowd in Jerusalem yelled just a few weeks prior to the statement. And now there's a very decisive change of mind. They rejected the Messiah. They rejected Jesus as Messiah. He can't be the Messiah. Look at him dying on the cross. Now the Holy Spirit has come. Signs have been given. Peter, the 11 apostles behind him, says Jesus is raised from the dead. He's exalted. God has made him both Lord and Christ. They hear that. The conviction of sins falls on them. And they realize this Jesus of Nazareth was and is the long-awaited Messiah, complete reversal of their thinking. Please understand that in this scenario and in our lives as well, there's no middle ground. They were, they were over here. They, they thought wrongly about Christ. They rejected Christ. Now they have to fully embrace Christ. There's nothing in between. There's no managing Jesus. And so, with the change of mind, 
must come also a change in purpose in life. There's some people say they believe in Christ, but you don't see their life change. So that means that they don't believe in Jesus, really. Because if they've really changed their mind, they're going to change what? Their actions. Their purpose in life changes. Now they're declaring Jesus as Lord. What does that mean? Master, the one you obey, king, the one you're under the authority of. You can't say you believe in Jesus as Lord if your life now isn't working towards following Him, His teachings, and obeying His Word, right? It's got to be a complete reversal of your life. Now, you may have come from a background. You say, well, we were raised somewhat Christian. You know, we went to church, or at least grandma brought us to church, or someone back there brought you to church. And so you're in a quasi kind of Christian upbringing. What are you supposed to change? Well, you were living for yourself, or you were living for money, or you were told since you were a little girl, a little boy, you need to succeed in school, and it was all about your pride and your education and what you were going to become and your career, and you were living for that. Maybe you still are, and you have to repent of that. You have to turn from that false God and worship the true God in the right way. Again, there's no middle ground. You can't work Jesus into your program. It doesn't work that way. This is why repentance is often illustrated as a U-turn. We know U-turns. We hate it when we come up to some place and we desperately got to go the other way and it says, no what? U-turns. And you go to the next one, it says, no U-turns. And you go to the next one, it says, forget about it. I'm going to break the law. I'm going to do a U-turn. I got I to get around here. And so you try to figure out a way to make it the other direction. How it is in life. You're going this way. That's the wrong way. Yeah, but I thought it was the right way. There's a way that seems right to a man, book of Proverbs says, but its end is the way of death. Death. It doesn't matter how it seems to you. It matters how God's Word says it. God's Word is particular. Another way of saying that is God's Word is narrow. Another way of saying that is God's Word is pointed. It's going to tell you what is truth and anything that's not truth It's amazing. You have to tell people that. Anything that's not truth, guess what it is? It's not true. It's lies. Nowadays, it's all true. Well, if everything's true, nothing's true. One Greek-English lexicon, Thayer's, describes metanoia this way, a change of mind, especially the change of mind of those who have begun to abhor their errors and misdeeds and have determined to enter upon a better course of life so that it embraces both a recognition of sin and sorrow for it and hearty amendment, the tokens and effects of which are now good deeds. So repentance has everything to do with conversion. One cannot be converted to Christ if he or she does not repent. No repentance, no conversion. You say, but what about faith? Well, faith and repentance are two sides of the same coin. Faith is the positive response of coming towards Christ. Repentance is a fuller term that talks about turning away from one set of false beliefs or false life and then turning toward Christ. It encompasses faith. It's a little more rounded in terms of what it describes. To repent, you must believe. And when you believe, you're automatically repenting from your previous false beliefs and your life of sin. John MacArthur in his book, well, the old title was called Faith Works. I don't know what it's called now. The title's been changed. But uh, he says this, conversion and repentance are closely related terms. Conversion occurs when a sinner turns to God in repentance faith. 
It is a complete turnaround, an absolute change of moral and volitional direction. Such a radical reversal is a response the gospel calls for. Whether the plea to sinners is phrased as believe, repent, or be converted, each entails the other. If someone is walking away from you and you say, come here, it is not necessary to say, turn around and come here. The U-turn is implied in the direction. In like manner, where the Lord says, come to me, as in Matthew eleven twenty-eight, the about face of repentance is understood. Nowhere does Scripture issue an evangelistic appeal that does not at least imply the necessity of repentance. And then he writes this. Our Lord offers nothing to unrepentant sinners. Just look at Matthew 9, 13, Mark 2, 17, or Luke 5, 32. That's why the related Hebrew term, we're dealing with Greek in the New Testament, the related Hebrew term in the Old Testament is shuv, S-U-B-V, if you're trying to figure out what I said, shuv. The Evangelical Dictionary of Theology defines that Hebrew term this way. It means to turn back, to turn away from, or turn toward in the religious sense. The Septuagint, that's the Greek translation of the Old Testament. The Septuagint consistently translates shuv with the terms epistrepho and apostrepho, which mean to turn and return. Repentance follows a turning about, which itself is a gift of God, end quote. The Old Testament prophets, many of you like to read through your Bible, you're reading through sections of the Old Testament and you're wondering how does any of that connect with what we're talking about in the book of Acts. Well, book of Acts, they're Jews to begin with, all the church is Jewish. They understood this concept of turning, of repentance, of change, because it was all over their their scriptures. I'll give you some samples. In 2 Kings 17 and 13, it says this, the Lord warned Israel and Judah through all his prophets and every seer saying, Turn from your evil ways and keep my commandments, my statutes, according to all the law which I commanded your fathers and which I sent to you through my servants, the prophets. So he spoke to the Israelites through the prophets. He called the prophets my servants. He said, I'm going to speak to you. And what, what did the prophets keep saying to the people? Every generation kind of heard the same thing. Turn from your sinful ways. Turn from your independence. Come back to your God. There was no real faith if they didn't turn back and away from their sinful practices. Some people want to say they believe in Jesus, but hang on to their sinful way of life. Well, it's clear you can't do that. You'll have to make a choice. Either you love your sin, keep your sin, and burn in hell, or you can let go of your sin and have the joys of Christ in this life and for eternity. It's really not much of a choice if you think about it. Your sins are only pleasurable for a little period of time. Holy people are happier people. They are. Satan's lie says, but, but holiness and obedience, that's what I have to do, but it's not all that much fun. You're wrong. You, your, your mind is too corrupted by the way the world thinks, which has the devil behind it. Another sample, Ezekiel thirty-three eleven. This is God talking to Ezekiel. Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked turn from his way and live. But where does it say to believe? That, that's, that's it. If you believe, you turn from your way and live. 
Then it goes on. Turn back. Turn back from your evil ways. Why then will you die, O house of Israel? Why do you choose death? Turn back. Malachi 3.7, last book of the Old Testament. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Joel 2.12, yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart and with fasting and weeping and mourning. Do you see the conviction of sin in that? And God will return to him. That turning to the Lord is a call to repentant faith, and it has everything to do with conversion. It is turning back to God, turning back to God's ways, turning back to God's will, saying no to you and yes to Christ. Psychology says, you know, you want to, you want to affirm yourself. Christ says you deny yourself. You deny yourself. You've got, you got false teachers out there even in the so-called social sciences. Now, again, can you see why preaching repentance and requiring repentance is crucial? This pertains to you. In some way, this pertains to you. Repentance is crucial for evangelism and missions work. How do you know when you're out there doing evangelism and missions work that someone has properly responded to the message about Jesus? The answer is they will repent from their sins and they will turn wholeheartedly to follow Christ. Efforts in evangelism need to see the right product. People want so badly for other people to believe, and they want so badly in some cases to prove that their church is being effective. Then they count anybody's response to Jesus in any kind of a way as a true response. That is not good. That puts into their minds and their hearts some kind of false assurance. I must be okay. The leaders of the church say I'm okay. What did they do? Well, they just walked an aisle and said they believed. But where did they repent from sin? Where's the, where's the turning of their life? I guess time will tell. Repentance is crucial when you talk to your friend and you've been praying for him and you see a little bit of a, a little bit of a interest in spiritual things and you think maybe he's converted. No, not until he repents from sin. You say that's hard. Yes, that's hard. Counseling work. You're a counselor. You're working with someone. You're a small group leader and you're trying to figure out, is this person I'm working with repentance or not? But if they're not dealing with their sin, if they're not humbling their heart, if they're not talking about the things that they have done that are wrong, then why are they coming to counseling? So the other person can change? So they can feel comfortable? Oh, I'm going to counseling. Counseling doesn't help anything. That what the counselor basically is going to say, trust in God and repent of your sins. You can pay me ahead of time for that, by the way, if you want to, because that's what I'm going to tell you. Sometimes it's very complicated in terms of the outward working of it, and there's a lot to work through. But the truth is, if you humble your heart, trust God, repent of your sins, God will work in your life. It, It honestly is that simple. And so um, each of us needs to look to ourselves as well. By the way, this is important for parents. You're dealing with your children. Did they repent? Well, they're crying. I know, but kids can cry because they got caught. I didn't hear any amens on that one. I would have thought for sure there's some mommy out there somewhere that understands this very much. They can cry because they're not getting what they want. 
or they displeased mommy or daddy, but they're not really repenting of the thing that you're trying to teach them. You need to work towards repentance in their heart. Why am I not seeing change? Because they haven't repented. Well, how do I make them repent? You can't. Trust me, if there was a button to make people repent, I would have pushed it a long time ago. But you can pray for them, and you cannot be caught up, and that's not really the right response. There is regretting. Judas regretted. He killed himself. He regretted his life so much, he killed himself. Peter sorrowed and repented. He turned. You're going to change. You have to turn. You have to have repentance. You can't just keep coming to counseling or keep sharing your difficulties. Let me just share you the difficulties I'm having. That person's been listening to you, and that person's been listening to you, and they've been kind to you. When are you going to change? God's waiting for your repentance. My prayers are not working because you're not repenting. This isn't rocket science. It's just hard to do. Say, why is it so hard? Because we're stubborn and proud. That's really the source of our problems. And each of you, you need to know, are you genuinely saved? You may have even passed the little, you know, interview we give for membership at Hope Bible. You remember that traumatic experience, don't you? Several lights were focused at your head. I went pacing back and forth in front of you like a Gestapo agent. And um, if you pass that, you must be born again. Not necessarily. We obviously make mistakes. But do you know in your heart you're genuinely converted? Have you repented? Or are you still living life for yourself? Only you and God know the answer to that. You can be in here a long time. You gotta, it, it, there's no shame if you've been here 5, 10, 15 years and you realize, I'm not converted. And then, and then now you realize that, and now you want to get saved. There's no shame in that. The shame is to die and go to hell. That's the shame. What do you think we're going to do with you if all of a sudden you come forward and you say, you know what, I realize I'm not converted. You think we're going to parade you around here like, this person wasn't converted. We're all humbled by our sin here. Yeah, but you don't know what I did, Pastor. No, I don't. And I don't care. God doesn't care. Christ died on the cross for all sins. The only thing that's going to send you ultimately to hell is if you don't repent. This is what Peter is requiring. I know I haven't gotten far, but we got to stay here. This is what the church has always required. It's the first word of the gospel. Turn. Turn from your wicked ways. Change your thinking. Redirect your whole life. We really are sinners in the hands of an angry God. Back to John MacArthur's book, he says, I am deeply concerned as I watch what is happening in the church today. Biblical Christianity has lost its voice. I'm tempted to stop there and talk about why Hope Bible Church. Biblical Christianity has lost its voice. We need a louder voice we need to use every means available to us to get the word out and to build other churches like this. Anyways, going on with a quote. The church is preaching a gospel designed to soothe rather than confront sinful individuals. Churches have turned to amusement and show business to try to win the world. By the way, that works. If the church wants to become more like the world, they will grow. Those methods may seem to draw crowds for a season, but they're not God's methods, and therefore they are destined to fail. 
In the meantime, the church is being infiltrated and corrupted by professing believers who never repented, never turned from sin, and therefore never really embraced Christ as Lord or Savior. Another lesser-known guy named Lockyer in his book, All the Doctrines of the Bible, I want to read this to you. It's a little bit long. We live in a superficial age. Now, he wrote this 50 years ago. I'm like, what do we live in now? (laughs) I don't have a word for it. Super superficial. We live in a superficial age, and nowhere is superficiality more evident than in the religious realm. Generally, people do not want their conscience disturbed, so the message of repentance is seldom preached. This generation, with all its religion, has lost the sense of sin and pays preachers to prophesy smooth things. Repentance is robbed of its true significance. The plow of conviction is never driven deep into the human soul. So-called revivals and evangelistic efforts produce shallow results because of the shallow repentance preached. Deep mourning for sin, hot, scalding tears of repentance, souls living in agony because of their burden are not common as they used to be. Saved and unsaved alike are not overawed by the august holiness of God and the filthiness of their own evil nature. The sob of anguish, woe is me for I am undone, is seldom heard in a religious service today. And then he goes on, However, wherever true repentance is preached and insisted upon, solid results accrue. Those saved under such preaching usually make robust Christians. End quote. This is what we're laboring for. I like that. Robust Christians. Not Christians who make excuses. It's their fault. It's their fault. Always somebody else's fault. How about for once it being your fault? How about the pastor not having to tell you that for once? You know what? You know, I, I, you know I'm trying to figure out some way to say this. You know, uh, what about your heart? Let's consider your heart for a minute. No, but so-and-so. No. I don't want to hear about so-and-so. I want to hear what's going on in you. Who are you loving? Who are you caring for? What are you repenting of? Are you jealous in your heart? Are you disappointed with God? He didn't do something different in your life. Come on, what's, let's, let's get this out. What's going on in that heart and that mind of yours? Because if you bring all that stuff out, let the light shine on it, you know what's going to happen to it? It's going to evaporate. It's going to go. It has no substance. It's not real. This stuff that's thrown in there to make yourself feel good because it's very easy, by the way, to point out that there's sinners in church. It's a very easy thing. Make it easy for all of you. Would you please raise your right hand if you're a sinner? Okay, there it is. So now you know. But there's sinners in the church. They didn't treat me. Well, what do sinners do? They don't treat other people all that well sometimes. That's what they do. So now you know. It's, it's, everyone's admitted it. So somebody treated you poorly. Too bad. It's too bad. You got to get over it. What about you? What about your own heart? This is what we're working for. This, some other very enlightening verses on repentance, just to drive this a little deeper into you. Acts 14, 15. Paul's talking to idol worshipers. You should turn from these vain things to a living God. Now, he knew if they kept going in that direction, their service to these other gods would be vain. Vain means empty. 
it would hurt them. When you tell somebody, take your medicine, you're not being mean, you're helping them, right? So when he shows up and finds a bunch of idol worshipers and says, turn from these things, he's not ruining their life. He's helping their life. What are the vain things you worship? I know it doesn't necessarily have to be made out of stone, but you're worshiping it. It's vain. It's hurting your life. It's slowing you down. It's robbing you of joy. It's making you not so fruitful. It's making you miss the energy of a relationship with God. Turn from it. There's nothing to hang on to there. The prodigal son had to go through this, right? Give me my money, dad. I'm gone. He had to go blow it all. He had to try it. I'm going to try it all. We're going to do this sin and that sin and spend the money here and get these friends and whoop it up. Some of you are younger and you're like that. You're like, I haven't had a chance in life to whoop it up yet. So go read the prodigal son. He ended up eating out of a pig trough. I got that right, don't I? Had a mental blank there. And then he's eating that stuff, or at least he's considering it. And he says, you know, I don't know what I'm doing here. I'm going to go back to my daddy's generous. He remembered the generosity of his father. He remembered the love of his father. Sometimes people, they got to go run into the world. Well, the world has so many beautiful things. And then you go do it and you realize it's an empty shell. Go talk to someone that already did it and don't waste your life doing that. I mean, the advantage of having people that really, really blew it in church is you can go talk to them. They say, I did that. And then you're like, yeah, 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 the older people don't understand me. Oh, yes, they do. And what you forget is you've never been older, but they have been younger. So, yeah, they understand. They may be not so sensitive about things because they realize you're a rascal and you're foolish and I'm going to give this thing to you straight. That doesn't mean you should talk to the young people that way. I'm just saying. If it slips out, it's because they've already done that. The world is only fun for a while. Then it rams a sword through your heart. So another verse, Isaiah 55, 6 and 7. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. What does that mean? I thought he's always near. He's omnipresent. Yeah, but he comes to you, to your mind and your heart, to woo you, to draw you, only at certain times. If you resist his work, it makes it harder the next time, not easier. Well, I'll delay and I'll get serious with God when I'm, you know, as old as Pastor Leek. Might be too late by then. You don't know how these things work. Let the wicked forsake his way, same verse, and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Oh, you have to repent of your thoughts. And let him return to the Lord. And the Lord, and what, what, what we so used to, I like to sometimes read different things into a Bible verse of how it could be, like when a kid realizes they were wrong and they come back and the, te- and the dad or the mom says something like, I told you so. I told you so. Didn't I tell you so? You act like that. That's what happens. And they have to boost up their parental pride a little. But the Lord doesn't chide his children. It says he will have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Copious pardon. How about Proverbs 3, 7? By the way, these aren't hard to interpret, are they? 
Does anyone have struggling with these? Do not be wise in your own eyes. You know what that is. You look yourself in the mirror and go like, I'm, I think I'm doing pretty well. Yeah, I've had a little practice, by the way, yes. I think I've learned a few things here. Yeah. I don't need so-and-so to teach me. Uh, yeah, parents are always telling me. That's wise in your own eyes. You say, but, but you don't know my parents. Yes, I, I probably do know your parents. They're not so bad. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord. And here it is again. Turn away from evil. Why does God require repentance? Why? I really am spending the whole time on repentance. I just realized. God wants repentance because he wants his truth in your innermost being. There's one thing that Jesus hated the most when he was traveling from town to town, and he spoke against the most. Check it out for yourself. Read Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. The thing he hated the most, the thing he spoke against the most, it was religious hypocrisy. It was the religious leaders who really did not practice what they preached. He hates it. By the way, that's what Satan is. Satan is a very religious being. He just wants the worship to come to himself. Very religious. Satan works in religion very powerfully. He likes religion. He's going to set up worship in the end times so that he is worshipped. He kind of mimics what God does. He's a very religious being. And uh, he likes religion. But God hates an outward show of religion. If you don't believe me, take some time this week and read through Isaiah 1. And you'll see the Jews are bringing and celebrating their feasts. They're coming and having gatherings like this. And God, it's like God saying, I'm covering my ears. I'm turning my eyes away from you. Please bring it no more. It disgusts me. Religious people who have an outward show of following God, but truth is not in the innermost being. If you're from a Catholic background, you heard of a thing called penance. Penance actually started out with teaching about repentance. But just like with any tradition that changes over time, it became an outward show for many Catholics. Well, if you do wrong, you do some penance. You do this act. You withdraw yourself from this. You don't allow this. And you kind of humble yourself and you do these things as if the outward thing impresses God. But what do we know about God from Samuel? He learned this from God, right? God doesn't look as man looks. Man looks on the outside and we say, oh, what a nice suit you're wearing this morning. What a nice hairdo you have. God doesn't look at that. He looks where? The heart. So he wants truth in at the heart level, the mind, the thinking, your motivations, your will, the things you're trying to do in life, your innermost person, your soul, your spirit, that person on the inside. That's what God wants. He doesn't want outward show. He hates outward show. He hates it. He hates it more than anything else. That's why he said the prostitutes and the tax collectors will get into the kingdom of heaven before the Bible teachers of his day. Pharisees. Pointing out the consequence of conversion, Charles Spurgeon preached this. Another proof of the conquest of a soul for Christ will be found 
in a real change of life. If the man does not live differently from what he did before, both at home and abroad, his repentance needs to be repented of, and his conversion is a fiction. Not only action and language, but spirit and temper must be changed. And then he goes on, abiding under the power of any known sin is a mark of our being the servants of sin. Have you truly repented? You can do that today. Did you notice I'm not yelling at you today too much? You can repent right there in your seat. It's between you and God. I can talk to you more. One of the leaders in the church can talk to you more. Um, If you're out evangelizing, make sure you press for repentance. Be the unpopular person. And don't feel you're doing something ignoble because you're trying to convert somebody else. Don't let them get into your head. You have good news. How blessed on the mountains are the feet of him who what? Brings good news. That's you. That's your feet and that's your mouth. We're going to actually close our service today a little special-like. My microphone walks with me. Would you stand and grab the hands of someone near you? I want everyone holding someone's hand. If you're worried about germs, then ask somebody for that stuff afterwards, okay? (laughs) Grab hands, hold, and we're going to close in prayer. We're going to close a couple minutes early so we can have a little longer prayer and Colleen can get an earlier start maybe. And we're going to thank God for what he's done in our lives in this place. Would you just pray with me? Father in heaven, thank you so much for your love. It's amazing that we are so stubborn against you and yet your love is so true and so faithful. Your mercies really are new every single morning. And it's amazing how you forgive us and and teach us to forgive each other also, Lord. Teach us where relationships have been hurt and broken, that we're quick to get reconciled. Teach us that we need one another, that you never designed us to flourish in our spiritual lives apart from one another. Thank you for this blessed doctrine of repentance. Help people in their hearts to deal honestly between you and them and their soul. And lead some to saving faith this very day, if you would. Father, thank you for this place in which we have been. Thank you for all of the conversations that have been in here and all the people that have been loved and helped in this place. Thank you for all the Bible lessons we've learned together and all the songs, songs that we've sung and the prayers that we've uttered and, and the quiet reflections we've had. Thank you for the service that's gone on in here, the, the chapels that have been in here and the children running around in here and the youth learning in here and our women having their breakfasts in here and our men meeting together and, and our singles and our small groups sometimes even gathering in this building. Thank you for all of the service that has gone on, Lord. And we just, uh, we give you the praise and glory for any of the fruit that's happened in this place. And we pray you remind us as we go forward to the next place that you are with us, your word is with us, and we still are your church. And we trust in your mighty leading and in your mighty hand. Amen.